The kids on Elm Street don't know it yet, but something is coming to get them. There's something out there, isn't there? <laughs> Halloween's a Freddy Krueger podcast. Was locked in a room with a girl who went in alive and came out in a rubber bag. From the Consequence Podcast Network, the minds behind the Losers Club comes a new podcast in fantasy terror. Nancy? Something wrong with you. You're imaginative. Halloweenies, a Freddy Krueger podcast. Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. Greetings, constant listeners, and welcome to another episode of The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast presented by the Consequence Podcast Network. I'm your host for this episode, Michael Rothman, Editor-in-Chief of Consequence of Sound. And you might have remembered me from last week's episode, in which I talked to Joe Bob Briggs of Shudder's The Last Drive-In. And I really hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. But we're back with another interview. We're not doing a book episode for a few more weeks because we're heading up to Ludlow, Maine. We're going to speak to the cast and crew a little film called Pet Cemetery. Heard of it? You've probably seen it, but you haven't seen this one because this is a new reimagining of Stephen King's 1983 novel. And we do mean reimagining. Now, if you haven't had a chance to read Dan Caffrey's eh, non-spoilerific review, maybe wait till after the movie, but just know that he was a huge fan of it. And I could see why. Because after speaking to today's guest, I could truly see the depth that Dennis Widmire and Kevin Kolsch are putting into this movie. Yes, today we're going to be speaking to Rachel Creed herself, actress, writer, producer, director, and editor, Amy Simons. Together we spoke about everything from growing up with Stephen King, spending late nights reading Christopher Pike and Arl Stein, early superstitions, and why we're drawn to horror at such a young age. Now mind you, there are some spoilers in this, so if you want to go into this movie totally blind, you might want to skip this or save this until afterwards. But if not, stick around. And we'll talk right after. What's going on? I wasn't ready to say goodbye to her. You're scaring me. Just tell me what you're talking about. It's my fault she died. I had to bring her back. There's a place rage deep in the woods. Beyond the pet cemetery. It brings things back. Are you happy, Mommy? <laughs> when did you first hear about Stephen King? Because I grew up in the 80s, I feel like he was just like omnipresent, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and synonymous with sort of terrifying things. And I, I watched a lot of horror films when I was younger because my parents were divorced. And when, we, when we, my sister and I would go to his house for the weekend, he would, it was just like, he's a bachelor. Mm-hmm. So we just like ate cheese with and he let us rent whatever horror movies we <laughs> wanted, whatever VHS we could find, you know, straight to video horror stuff. Yeah. And we were like so excited because my mom didn't let us do that. So she was not very happy about that. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but so I watched a lot of horror movies, but I started, I also really liked when I was younger, R.L. Stein and Christopher Pike. And my mom had a bunch of Stephen King and then I jumped 
to Stephen King novels when I was like eight years old. Like I was just fascinated by the horror medium in general. The first book I read was Cujo. Oh, awesome. For R.L. Stein and Christopher Pike. Did you have growing up those scholastic order forms you'd get in school? Yeah. <laughs> so was that how you found R.L. Stein or did you have, did you know about him before that? My sister was, my sister's older than I am. She was, she had all those books. So they were like hand me down uh, for my sister. But I, yeah, but whenever I'd get those scholastic, I forget what they're called, but they would, when they send them home, they're like the newspapery. Yeah. yeah. You mark the boxes. Uh, yeah. I would order anything that edged on the zone of a little scary. That was like the best thing growing up for me. Um, I went to um, like a private Catholic school or whatever. I was already kind of like a heretic in their eyes and all, but I always had like stacks of Goosebumps books that were being ordered. Anything horror, like the scary stories books and stuff like that. So I'm right there with you. There's something about, and I hope it's still part of like the younger generations today. There's just something so intrinsically exciting about horror. And I try to keep understanding what it was as a kid, but there's something about being under the sheets and just like reading something that I guess is taboo, maybe. I don't know what the psychology is behind it. Taboo and scaring yourself. But also you're, you're a kid and you're still figuring out the world. So there's so many questions mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah. So anything's possible, you know, and that's why it's that books are so alluring. Anything's possible in your head. And so when you start talking about ghosts and zombies and all that stuff like that's just as possible as me being an accountant for instance you know like (laughs) in my eight-year-old head yeah it's just as realistic as me being 35 and being an accountant and working (laughs) in a desk you know like yeah zombies are real and so is that yeah were there any supernatural stuff that you like legit thought were real growing up and maybe even still do today you know ghosts i i still find that i like just ghosts in general i I mean when i was a kid I was obsessed with ghosts and finding ghosts. And my mom's a very intelligent person. She works with brain injury patients. But, you know, there's always these unexplained things that happen in the house that I grew up in. Mm -hmm. And like really weird, like weird occurrences in my childhood house. And my mom is convinced that it's a woman that lived there before. Well, convinced, but also has a sense of humor about it. And like, you know, she's not talking to to ghosts or anything. But (laughs) I guess that when I was little like really little, like three, she would like walk into my bedroom and I'd be talking to somebody. And then she'd ask me who I was talking to. And I'd tell her it was the lady and that the lady left when my mom entered the room, which is really creepy. Three-year-old. Totally. Totally. Whether or not you believe in ghosts, like just any child talking to something that's not there is imaginary friends are terrifying to me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny because I, I used to, um, I guess I used to sleepwalk and my mother would like, I remember one time she told me, yeah, you know, so last night I was coming down for a cigarette and, um, you were just sitting Indian style in the living room and I just decided not to have a cigarette and I just left you there and, um, was like, this is creepy. I'm just going to acknowledge that. And then I'm going to go back upstairs. And I still have no memory of like actually sitting downstairs and all, and I've no memory of coming back upstairs for it. But I just always thought that was so creepy. And I can't even imagine, I always try to imagine what what was going on through her head when she's just like, what is going on with my son? (laughs) Like, why is he doing this? Yeah. For a second, I thought you were saying that you were coming down for a cigarette as a kid. (laughs) (laughs) You were telling your mom, I came down for a cigarette (laughs) last night. I was like, whoa, past life regression. I know, yeah. <laughs> I actually did I, I did steal her cigarettes. I was uh, kind of a, a little bit like a Stephen King, the way he writes kids in there. Like, I don't know if that was a thing in our, from my generation or whatever, but like I always stole cigarettes like from like third grade going forward for some reason. It was just like a rebellious thing. I hope that's not a, a trend today at all. I did the same thing. Okay, I know. cool. Yeah. I feel better. <laughs> 
So when you're reading Cujo and you made that progression and go into the, you know, the bigger books, do you remember like what really caught your eye? Like what made you feel like, oh my God, like this is totally different than Christopher Pike. This is totally different from Arl Stein. Like I'm in a, a way more adult situation. You know, it's really funny because it's kind of around the time when you're a kid in school, you read that either where the red fern grows or Ooh. old yeller, you mm-hmm. know? So that for me, it was like, well, this is a lot more adult than old yeller. This is a lot scarier. <laughs> yeah. Of like, of you know, so in my kid head, it's like rabies equated because you're, you're still not, again, like you're learning things. And so I equated like rabies with like possession. Mm-hmm. And obviously rabies is a scientific <laughs> thing and not your animal getting possessed by the devil. But when you're that age, you kind of wonder if that's, that could be the case. It's like, well, maybe rabies is getting possessed. Maybe the dog gets possessed. Like maybe old yeller was possessed like Cujo, you know? Yeah. yeah. And I remember like having that very childlike approach to it, which was like, oh, you know, science and supernatural they're on the same level when you're that age yeah it's it's interesting too with the possession thing because even as a kid the idea of rabies never came across me i always just thought that like reading cujo as a kid like oh yeah no this is absolutely like this dog is just possessed like there's there's no scientific explanation for that and you know years later i look back and like oh okay well i guess there is a, a scientific reason for it but there are no scientific reasons for pet cemetery and that book is absolutely terrifying and you had said you had read that book like shortly after Cujo, I believe. Yeah, I mean, I I was on a tear because yeah. like once they started letting me read the adult books, I read Cujo and then I read Christine, which again is the same is the same <laughs> thing. It's like, yeah, well, I don't know how the car works, so yeah, it just turns on by itself, you know, yeah. and it will lock you inside and try to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> and then read Pet Cemetery after Christine. And I remember that the thing that was really disturbing to me was not necessarily like the zombies. I mean, that's that's disturbing in its own right. But and as a kid, really thought, you know, if we buried a pet, that it might come back to life and holding out for that hope, you know. <laughs> yeah. But also, it's incredibly adult, and it's mm-hmm. in, it's as much a portrait of a marriage and the inner dialogue of Lewis Creed talking about his relationship to his wife and his feelings about his wife and his feelings about his kids. And they're not always nice thoughts. Oh God, no. You know, they're, it's, it's, a, it, they're, it's disturbing for yeah. a kid to read, you know, cause you think your parents just love you unconditionally. I mean, uh, my parents did love me unconditionally, but like <laughs> that you, they just love you. And they, they think you're like the cat's meow, you know, no, no pun intended. <laughs> um, but uh, to hear, you know, certain things when you're that age and to see things, I think there's one passage where he's describing how Ellie is like just being like a nightmare because of the move. Mm-hmm. He just like wants her to shut up, you know? Yeah. Just like even small things like that. You're like, what? Like my parents, are, they want, they're annoyed with me. Like, you know? yeah, no, totally. Like right in the beginning, like, you he's like, I want to go leave and go to Disney World and leave my kids behind or something like that. And it's like, Jesus yeah, Christ. Yeah, it, completely. And you, and, and yeah, I mean, you experience the outward, like when your parents get mad at you, totally. you know, when you experience that. But to like be reading thoughts that they have that lead up to that, like, stop doing that, you know, is really disturbing. It's because also you're learning around that time that like other people have thought you know like you you have this progression of childhood where you think you're the center of the universe and then around like seven eight that's when you start to realize that everyone outside of you has their own sort of mo you yeah. know and yeah. so to have that sort of co- coincide with reading that book and realizing that my parents have thoughts that aren't just about me yeah. <laughs> you know Seriously. was also really disturbing yeah and in hindsight god that, that is a because i i think i read it around when i was like 15 or 16 
And I, I can't even imagine reading it if I was like eight or 10 or something like that, just because there is a lot of like graphic parts about even just like the intimacy of, yeah. you know, the relationships too, which we on the podcast, we usually poke fun at Stephen King with like a lot of the ways he does his sex scenes and stuff sometimes. But I actually think they're really like well written in this book. And I think yeah. they actually earned and you really believe the love that they show in this book. Just reading as an adult, because we had to revisit it last year, it makes the book that much more tragic because they have their irregularities and their wrinkles and all, but every couple does. But at the core, they really do like love each other, which makes that ending just like so much more brutal. Yeah. And I, yeah, and rereading it, it's so, I mean, just those moments, that's what, that's exactly why it makes it so tragic is mm-hmm. these moments and how, how realistic it is. And, and he'll be like mad at Rachel at one point, but then I think there's one where they're in bed and she like farts really loud, you know, like these really like silly sort of relationship and then they just start laughing about it. Mm-hmm. And like those little moments in the novel or those details of, of this intimate relationship of this husband and wife and their relationship to parenting is what when tragedy strikes makes it so hard because yeah. it's just you know you you lose like that's what you lose is is that you know grief and losing a kid is just i i I can't you know god that would just be it'd be all consuming and it just you know and so in order to get to that tragic place and to understand the decisions that that lewis makes to bring gage back you have to understand what you've lost Mm -hmm. which is normalcy and i think that that he did it magnificent it's one of my favorites I mean, rereading it, I was like, "Oh yeah, this is really good. Like, yeah. this is this like speaks to how relationships actually are." It's in addition to it being disturbing and terrifying. It's the beginning half of the novel is 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 so acute in its portrayal of a marriage. Totally, and you almost see it like evolve as you get to see with um, Judd and Norma across the street, where they can kind of you see like the the kind of tail end of the life cycle and just how far that relationship could go. And it almost kind of seems like a cruel joke to Lewis by the end when everything else is crumbling apart and he's still, you know, he sees this, this couple that's living across the the street that has had this entire life ahead of them. And that's all he just wants to do is to start this life for himself. And all these little hiccups keep happening and major hiccups. But that's the thing I love about Stephen King. And is that like, you know, there is always a hook to his books that, you know, like, oh, yeah, this is the killer car. or No, this is the one where the, you know, the dead animals come back to life. But like, there is always something bigger that's at hand. And there's always just there's so much depth. And yeah, I think that's what I love about this story is just that the depth of just the American family, in a way, it's just I mean, it's such a commentary on the nuclear family and just how much emphasis of our own lives we put it into it and yeah i agree i think they capture that perfectly in this book being cast for the film first off how excited were you when you got this role i mean having been a fan of the books and having read it you know younger when did you actually revisit the book kevin and and dennis were familiar because they come from the indie world like i did oh awesome and they were familiar with me and upstream color and then they were familiar with me and uh adam wingard's movies or oh, way to die and your neck and then the sacrament Ty West movie oh that totally makes sense and, yeah and i was familiar with starry eyes too so when they approached when they, my agents were talking about me doing it I, I i was already a fan of their work yeah so i was excited and and also i immediately called my sister because my sister was right next to me when we'd watch horror movies when i was younger and she was like, she was like, oh, do you get to at the end of the movie have your eyeballs like falling out and like kiss your husband? And like, <laughs> so she was excited too. And she came to the premiere on Saturday 
And it was really fun because she sat next to me and she was terrified the whole time. And I thought it was really entertaining to watch her like (laughs) close her eyes and like not watch half the movie because she she gets really scared at horrors and she's like 40. (laughs) But But it still was terrifying. And I was like, I'm okay. I'm sitting next to you. And she's like, I know, but this is, I, I hate watching this. <laughs> <laughs> the tables had turned. You, you got to scare her at this point, mm-hmm. which is great. You know, this adaptation definitely places a greater emphasis on Rachel Creed, at least compared to the, the, the 89 version. And did you feel that having read the books multiple times now and being familiar with the character and I'm sure, you know, being familiar with the original film, do you feel that's true? Do you feel like that, that this went even deeper, maybe even than in the book? The book is really, it really has some amazing passages. And even though it's from his point of view, mm-hmm. there's so much insight into Rachel and her psychology. Like that, there's that great passage when she finally really goes into depth with Lewis about what it was like growing up with Oof, Zelda yes. being ill and what that felt like. And I felt like as somebody, that's, like, I took care of my dad when he was ill and until he passed away. And I felt like it really hit close to home in terms of, a portrayal of what the grieving process is like and it's not just melancholy like she goes from maniacal laughter to like crying to anger to despondent to you know just in one passage of her explaining it and and there's also that nasty moment where he's like oh man I want her to stop talking about this (laughs) I'm sorry I asked because she just like Right, like once the floodgates open, she like can't stop, you yeah. know. And I, I like that he it acknowledges that he's like, okay, I've hit my limit. I don't want to listen to this anymore. Yeah, you know, it's just it's kind of nasty, but it's really honest. So yeah, I mean, I'm a fan of the original one. I mean, so oh, me many too. people. I, I, I love it's it. Such yeah. an iconic film, and and not only that, but Mary Lambert. I mean, she directed some of my favorite Madonna videos. Oh, totally. Like a prayer. I mean, that was such an event when it came out. Mm-hmm. So I personally just see it as a reinterpretation of the novel, you mm-hmm. know, and that they're great companion pieces and they're just different. Yeah. You know, both the films, are, they're just different, you know, and I think in the original, because it was, you know, coming from the novel and having myself as a writer and director adapted material, like a book, it's mm-hmm. really hard. You can't fit everything in. Yeah. No, you no. really have to choose a tack. And I think Mary Lambert was to choose the tack of just making it his story, mm-hmm. you know, because the book is so much in his head. And I think in this one, they they chose the a, a direction to make both Rachel and him, you know, have equal part in the story in the, the new one. Do you think a lot of that has to do with the the great switch, you know, the, the, the quote unquote controversial switch? I don't actually think it's that controversial, but I guess the internet goes crazy about it. But, you know, with the, the two different kids, like, do you feel it? You might have approached the role differently had it been Gage versus Ellie, like the loss of like the toddler and the loss of the daughter. Like if there's something different that that changes the role a little bit, and maybe that's one of the reasons why Rachel might actually have a little bit more of a role here. Obviously, an eight-year-old is different than a toddler, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's what's really cool about our version is that Ellie's starting to have these questions about what death is, you know, mm-hmm. and she's starting to have these existential questions of what does death mean in our version it gives both lewis and i you know we have our own points of view of how to parent that Mm -hmm. conversation so yeah i mean i think that that already in a parenting way just puts rachel in a position of my opinion is just as valid as yours and there's obviously a conflict of interest there Mm -hmm. and so i think in terms of grieving you know 
your child would, would I say that I would be sadder if it was a <laughs> no a, I didn't mean it that girl. way <laughs> <laughs> no no I just no. meant like thematically like his gauge at least in the original stories like it has like that, that that cutesy innocence to it but yeah like you do have like Ellie that you hit right there she's challenging both parents and like asking about themes of death and themes of mortality and then in this one she dies <laughs> so it's like it's i wondered if that did change the kind of the way that your brain would go into the role a little bit yeah and i think that when jason and i would talk about this with the directors too is like with the way that rachel wants to parent her which is you know she wants to shield her from thinking about things and she wants to delicately you know approach death in, in a way that isn't scary for her daughter and mm-hmm. Lewis comes from, you know, his his point of view is he's a doctor and it's mm-hmm. just a fact of life, you know. But Rachel, through her experience in growing up, is is like, no, it can like really screw you up. Yeah. You know, it's not a concept that is easy to digest as a kid. It doesn't matter what job you have and it doesn't matter how smart you are when it comes to parenting you guys have to be on equal footing. Mm-hmm. So he can't he can't come in and tell me that like I'm wrong for wanting to ease into that conversation in the way that I just because he's a doctor you know like yeah. that's insulting yeah that's in, that you know better about parenting just because you're a doctor that's not fair you know yeah no totally totally well you know going into this how long did uh, everyone get to kind of build that chemistry together as a family you know because that, that's such a hard thing to capture on screen sometimes and to have that come off so naturally as it does in the movie like did you get to spend some like time ahead of time and try to get familiar with one another or did you just have kind of have to like green light go we had a little bit of time we had some days where we went out to the park and, <laughs> and hung out with the kids because the boys that played Gage, they were little. I mean, when we started shooting, there were there were only two. Oh my god! And so <laughs> you know, just getting them familiar because it, it's I mean, not scary to see like zombie makeup because it, I think they get they 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 got the concept of like Halloween that you dress up and yeah. they get you know what I mean. Like it wasn't the makeup <laughs> that was intimidating. It's I mean, Jason and I are like screaming and crying, you know, and yeah. running and scared. <laughs> And I think for them, like just getting them to be like, we're okay, we're okay, people don't be terrified while we're like acting like maniacs, yeah. you know, because little kids don't understand that concept. They're like, you adults are crazy, you know, <laughs> <where it's, laughs> like they understand p- pretend and being silly and dressing up as like a zombie, but they don't like when you start like emotionally, you know, I'm really crying. Yeah. They don't understand, you know, that that's so so getting that foundation so that they felt safe and they understood that we were okay and safe to be around Mm -hmm. was really important for the rest of the shoot. So we had a few days of bonding, but you know, with stuff like this, you just kind of have to jump in. Yeah. If you had a snapshot scene for this film, the one that you're either proud of, or you just kind of keep revisiting, like being like, man, we really, really fucking nailed that. What scene really kind of sticks out to you the most out of this entire film? The hardest one, I'm really proud of it. The hardest one was after I see Ellie come back. Mm-hmm. And it's the reaction to her, but then the next moment where Jason and I are upstairs and we have to explain what happened and emotionally keep it grounded mm-hmm. was a really delicate dance. It was a scene that we pointed out from the beginning as like, if you can't sell this emotionally and then like, People will laugh at it. You know what I mean? People, and yeah. it, it is a funny film and it pokes fun. And part of the funniness of it is, is the fact that it is so absurd, you know, like that she's back from the dead and how does your brain actually like compute that? And so that scene where it was just like, well, Rachel needs, she needs to catch up 
to like we've seen Lewis like go to the he's he's already he's already processed it with watching Church come back from the dead, and mm-hmm. then he knows that there's this place, and then he goes and he buries Alien. So he's already you know he's like already lived a whole lifetime. Whereas in the, in the next like four minutes, Rachel has to like understand what's going on mm-hmm. and just nailing that and making it believable, but also towing the line of straight horror where you can't go wait a minute, explain, you don't have 15 minutes for me to sit and go, wait a minute, so like, what magically happens in the woods? You know, you have to just like sell it through performance and also like be in touch with the fact and, and really use the, the fact that her brain is sort of, it's like it's like having an aneurysm, you know? Yeah. Where it's like, I can't compute what's happening and, and using that realism, of like the um, that emotional realism, but like taking it to my reference points for them was like, like Shelly Duvall level, you know, of like horror performance. Mm -hmm. And even Jason too, is like really being aware of what movie you're in, but also staying true to, to reality. Yeah. It was a really fine dance, like a fine line. You know, it was a, it was a dance that was to me one of the more difficult scenes. And I feel really proud of it because I think it's pretty good. It is such a different horror film because there's such a cerebral nature to it. It's not just like, something pops out and you have to run and scream like no you it's like especially in this version like you really have to kind of live with it (laughs) so it's like that's that type of like enduring fear is i can imagine is is really hard to kind of keep up the the momentum of it has got to be exhausting too yeah it is yeah Yeah. (laughs) you have to rest really well for the next day (laughs) your last uh directorial effort the feature film you know, it was 2012 thriller uh, Sun Don't Shine, which coincidentally was also a huge winner at uh, South by Southwest. And I wanted to know if you're going to be returning to direct anytime soon and maybe possibly in horror. Yeah, I wrote and directed two seasons of The Girlfriend Experience, mm-hmm. inspired by Steven Soderbergh's his film. And I directed a few episodes of Atlanta. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then I, which was amazing. I love those guys so much. I mean, Donald Glover and Hero are just two of my favorite people. And then I signed a deal with FX. So I'm writing a series for FX right now that is still like in, in the in the thriller genre. And then I, I actually am writing a horror movie right awesome. now. So, awesome. Which hopefully will be going soon. So. That is amazing. That is amazing. I have one last question. Basically on that note, if you could adapt any Stephen King book and direct it, write it, even star in it, which one would it be? It could even be like a movie that's already been made, something you want to reimagine. Would you, if you had carte blanche to do any of them, which one would you go for? I was just thinking about this, and I and, and during the interviews, I I realized it'd be really cool to do Stand by Me, but with little girls, with oh, teenage yeah. girls. That could and, be really cool. And because I I I love that I love that movie and that book so much. But like, and most of the guys that I know, that's just like one of their favorite films, and mm-hmm. it really hits friendship and sort of this dark side of like coming of age in a way that I wish that I had one as a little girl <laughs> you know that is so funny like my ex-wife that's like one of my favorite movies and I remember showing it to her years ago and I was like how, how awesome was that and she's just like eh, it didn't do anything for me so like that became her like running joke she's just like oh stand by me great it, it's, it was one of my dad's favorite movies and it's also in the 50s so he felt like mm-hmm. nostalgic for it so i like i loved it because when i watched it with my dad it felt really special and it made me feel like i understood my dad as like a as like a kid a little bit better but i still yeah but see i i love that movie it doesn't matter if it's boys or not but i just think that it would be really cool for teenage girls to have something like that 
for me, it made me love friendship. Or mm-hmm. I, when I think about that movie, it makes me feel like my childhood friends are so special. Yeah. You know, that that would be the one that I would that I would choose. Would you set it in the 50s or would you kind of update it in a different time period? It's interesting because maybe I would I would set it in the 80s just so I mm-hmm. would feel connected to it. Yeah. You know? And I also think it'd be great just because it is, you know, just reinterpreting it and, and making it more nostalgic for some for for me emotionally. It's just set it in the 80s, but also because it was such a huge thing in the 80s or a huge movie in the 80s that that seems respectful enough to the material. I think that'd be awesome. God, that that's a really good idea. A really good idea, actually. Well, good luck with everything, Amy. Seriously, thank you so much for speaking with us. Of course. Have a good one. All right. Bye. <laughs> She doesn't want me here. No, 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 no. Mommy just needs time. It's okay. I don't want her here either. Wasn't that pretty great? Yeah, I thought that was awesome. You know, I just love when talent actually just really appreciates the source material. And you could just tell talking to her that she just knows so much about Stephen King. And I really think that's going to, you know, help and aid in this film for sure. I'm also really, really interested in actually seeing a new reimagining of Stand By Me. I, I, I think that's actually an awesome idea. And I think that if you can take Stephen King's source material and subvert it and do something different with it, as they've done with Castle Rock, if they're doing with Pet Cemetery, I think it could lead to, you know, pretty exciting results. And also, we've read these stories, at least we have, us constant listeners and constant readers. So give us something new. That's why I'm excited for Pet Cemetery. Out. April 5th. And we're not done talking to the talent involved in Pet Cemetery. Next week, we're hopefully going to be having the directors talk to us ahead of our roundtable review. We're all going to give our bright Pennywise clown noses. So stick around for that. Although if that doesn't happen, which, you know, everything's tentative in this world, you never know. We'll be talking about the news because, oh my God, is there a lot of it? There's Castle Rock season two. There's the Dark Tower. We're probably going to be hearing about an It Chapter 2 trailer coming on soon. This is the year of King. Please do follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We always got that fresh content, as Rock and Randall likes to call it. And this time we really do. We have video interviews from South by Southwest featuring our own Dan Caffrey. And you're going to see a lot of people involved in the movie there. So that's going to be very exciting. So be sure to follow us on socials. And then also leave us a review, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or, you know, uh, wherever you get podcasts. Just leave us a review. Give us five stars. Say we're awesome. And then tell your friends about it, like that Heather Locklear ad. And you tell your friend, and she tells his friend, and so on, and so on, and so on. But isn't that life a revolving door of chaos? One we take in stride over long days and pleasant nights. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot Consequence Podcast Network.